This week we're talking about photographing New Zealand with Will Patino, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. everyone. I just got done with a conversation with Will Patino. He's an incredible New Zealand-based landscape photographer. If you're not familiar with his work, you should really check him out. I'll put a link in the description below to where you can find his work. Does most of his photography on the island of New Zealand where he is from, and I'm absolutely in love with the way that he captures forest scenes, as well as capturing the moment in those seascapes that I'm so fond of. So in this conversation we had, we talked about photographing New Zealand and some of the things that New Zealand has to offer, but we also talked about his creative process and how he chooses to photograph handheld, which is a little bit rare among landscape photographers. So we talked about a lot of different things. Hopefully you'll enjoy the conversation that I had. Um, Yeah, so let's jump into the conversation I had with Will Patino about photographing New Zealand. So when I think about New Zealand, I think about Lord of the Rings, Hobbits, and Will Patino. Awesome to finally get to chat with you, man. I'm a big fan of your photography. We've talked about having you on the show for quite a while, and it's fun to finally get to sit down with you, dude. Uh, Thank you so much, mate. It's a pleasure to be on. Here in the United States, we're kind of going into our fall, towards the end of September as we record this, and we're starting to get into our fall season, which I guess means that you're starting to go into your spring. That's right. right? That's it, yeah. In the America, a lot of times... A lot of us landscape photographers don't shoot a lot in the summertime unless it's like storms or something. Uh, Do you have seasons that are more fruitful photography wise in New Zealand than other times of the year? Yeah, definitely. You're in the Pacific Northwest, aren't you? Yeah. 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 So the climate here and the seasons are somewhat similar, even the landscape itself. We don't get the extremes with the winter that you guys get. Uh, But yeah, what I'm getting at is definitely the most uh, productive times to be a landscape photographer, in my opinion, would be yeah the, the fall or autumn and winter. And then, yeah, the summer, obviously, like I'm always just watching the conditions. I've always got ideas in mind. Summer's great for camping and stuff because we get really long daylight hours. The sunsets are not till, you know, 9.45 p.m. at night. So then it's not dark until almost 11 because of the latitude we're at down here. So that's great if you're going out camping and you want to have, you can cover a lot of ground with a lot of daylight hours. So yeah, there's different seasons for different things. I'm trying to do just more workshops in the the peak seasons, you know, your autumn, winter. The good thing about those seasons too is that they're typically not the time of year that tourists would come here. So that works out really good in that regard also. But yeah, definitely the lower light in autumn and winter is just, you know, so good for photography. And then the snow on the mountains as well is just the icing on the cake. So yeah, I'd say it's very similar to what you explained for sure. When I look at, especially through your portfolio, for those of you that have not looked through his portfolio, you should definitely do so because the work is awesome. Thank you. The thing about New Zealand photography is just how how much diversity there is. Yeah. You have everything from rainforests to glaciers. It's really, really impressive uh, terrain and landscape. There's so much to shoot there. 
a small island, but the what we have here, as you said, is the variety is like no other. We had a day last week on the workshop I was running where we commenced in a town um, with nice coffee, good cafes, and then within an hour and a half, we're in a temperate rainforest and it started snowing on us, which is just you know as good as it gets to have the lush greens with the falling snow. But then by sunset or later that afternoon, we're going through a huge gorge surrounded by glaciated mountains, and then at sunset, we're on the beach, all, all within a a five-hour window, basically. So there's not too many parts of the world where you can really, you know, get all that diversity in such a short amount of time. For me as a landscape photographer, I'm from Australia originally, but I fell in love with New Zealand the first time I came here and it, and it felt more like home to me than where I where, where home technically was. So I had to move here. But um, yeah, it's just amazing. For me, I'd say it's just about got everything except for like big sand dunes you know like what you guys get in death valley or something like that there are small dunes but there's nothing that compares to that big stuff that you guys have however aside from that i feel like it pretty much ticks every single box and people will often ask me where do you want to go where do you want to shoot and travel to and i i I kid you not like my main answer is here i just want more time to keep exploring here and getting out there because there's so much here for me that just keeps inspiring me and and calling me in so i don't really feel too compelled to i will like to travel again soon just for a few personal trips but i don't even have anywhere narrowed down yet it's just what i've got in the backyard here is enough to just get me pumped up and excited and even this morning i was looking at the fog outside and i was like oh would be good to quickly run into the forest but <laughs> so i'm always just yeah pretty driven to get out there it's just a landscape that is just perfect like i said it's very similar to where you are you know um, pacific northwest it's just got that amazing vast variety it's somewhere as a landscape photographer that yeah you can't really go wrong <laughs> from like watching your stories and some of the behind the scenes videos and some videos from your youtube channel seems like a, a pretty rugged area as well like there's some areas that are are less accessible simply because there's not roads you know some of the, the fjords and things seems like that makes it so there's just a lot more to explore because it's a little bit more difficult to explore. For sure. That's probably what drew me here the most was the wilderness and, you know, how untouched it is. And as most landscape photographers who have been shooting for a long time, I'm really drawn to places that I just haven't seen before. I haven't seen it ever. There's no Google images. There's nothing like that. So I'm, I'm definitely called to to explore and get out there, I just feel so much more joy and fulfillment in, in you know, witnessing places that I just haven't seen photographed. Um, so, yeah, there's there's enough of that here. There's so, there's places here that humans still probably have not laid foot, just mountain valleys right out in the fjords where there's just no logical reason why someone would have been there or could have got there. Um, and that that's pretty inspiring. But I've got an endless list on my topo map of just – potential ideas and locations to get to but it's just finding the time to to eventually get out there but yeah nz it's like say iceland for example where you have the main ring road and then you've got all your iconic places off that new zealand's kind of similar you've got you know a few main roads lots of iconic places nearby but then once you get away from those roads there's areas where it's you know 100 miles of just no roads, no access, just wilderness, particularly here in Fjordland where I live, where, yeah, it is just so rugged and remote and it's not built up at all. And that's uh, that's where I find the inspiration, knowing that it's just you and nature 100%. There's no power lines. There's no cars going by. 
yeah, that's that's what keeps me going, I think. Looking through your portfolio, some of my favorite images of yours, I think, are some of the forest scenes that you photograph. Oh, um, all the beautiful ferns and moss-covered trees. And mm. you you have a way of really composing those scenes in, in a really organized way, which is very difficult to do. Forest yeah. scenes are notoriously chaotic. Yeah. Um, one of the things when I reached out to listeners of the show about questions to ask you. And one of the things that, you know, I was going to ask you about anyways, is the fact that you shoot handheld probably more than any landscape photographer I've watched. And it's, it's very much, it's very different from myself. And I'd be really interested to know like your take on why it is that you shoot so much handheld and maybe some of the things that you do to make that work in those kind of darker scenes. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the compliments on the forest stuff. Funny enough, I'm not happy with any of my forest imagery. And at the moment, the last six, seven weeks, I've just been creating a new series of forest scenes, which hopefully I'll, I'll wrap up soon and release. Um, but yeah, as far as the handheld goes, it's probably one of my biggest questions. I filmed a little skit recently for YouTube, which will hopefully go up soon, just because I was thinking, yeah, when did that really start? You know, when did I start shooting handheld? And I realized it was actually when I moved to NZ in 2017. In the fjords here, um, the further west you go, the further you get to the coast, the, the rainfall is immense. You know, there's more rainfall here on the western fjords than what you get in the Amazon rainforest. And wow. what I enjoy about that, though, is the what it does to the landscape. It just comes to life. There is innumerable waterfalls that just cascade down off the mountains. The rainforest comes to life. The cascades start flowing. So m moving here and getting out there, I've always been drawn to the weather and the elements and I just wanted to get amongst it and photograph it and, you know, get down into creeks, put waders on and be out there in the rain because once the rain stops, a lot of the waterfalls stop, for example. And there was one specific image I remember very vividly trying to capture and using the tripod and it, like this is proper heavy rain and if you've ever tried, as you would have, to shoot on a tripod in pouring rain inside of it, like in a raging creek, you're just asking for trouble. It's just so hard. The second you put the camera on the tripod, it's going to, you know, get soaked, blah, blah, blah. So I remember on that specific day just ditching the tripod and I just thought, I'm just going to, I've got to shoot this somehow. And I just started mucking around handheld. And I, I, I surprised myself at how I was able to get the the water flow texture at one eighth of a second, tack sharp all the way through. And being handheld meant that I could just very quickly change the composition. I could cover the camera with a towel. I could shoot, cover it up could just keep moving along and that was the moment where I was like man I'm surprised I got this sharp you know because I always had that mindset of you need a tripod to be a landscape photographer and for my first few years that's that's how I worked and if I left the tripod at home then I, I remember one time in Australia getting to a location and I realized the tripod wasn't in the car and I, <laughs> I just drove away I was like angry oh no and didn't even try so I just had that mindset and yeah getting here and getting into the elements basically forced me to ditch the tripod and then what happened was when I started using the tripod in between handheld shoots I just couldn't do it because it, it's so different you can imagine being handheld if you want to make an adjustment with your composition especially like you said in a forest where maybe you're trying to line a sun star up and the ferns in the foreground and every inch makes a dramatic difference yeah. to your composition and on the tripod adjusting one inch left and right on an uneven surface oh, it, i feel the blood boil talking about it you know it's very tedious so with the handheld 
I was able to get around and, and not have to worry about that. So whenever I used a tripod again, I just felt frustrated. So yeah, I kid you not, the last five years, I haven't released an image using a tripod unless it's a, an astro shot, but I only really shoot astro maybe once every, when we get the Southern Lights here, which is quite rare. So yeah, maybe in five years, I've released two images using the tripod. Oh, pro- maybe three or four because of an Iceland trip back in 2019. But yeah, otherwise, I just don't use it. Like it just stays here in my office in the studio and, and that's it. And there's definitely techniques I've had to develop and little hacks to work around being able to do what I do. I don't shoot in blue hour, for example. I just enjoy light. So I'm, as long as that sun is above the horizon or close to it, sunrise, sunset, then there's no issues at all. And yeah, focus stacking, everything like that, you can definitely get around. You need a mirrorless camera though. That's the main thing. Yeah. Like the stabilization in the mirrorless is critical to do my workflow with a DSLR is yeah, just way too difficult to be honest. In body stabilization really changed what is possible as far as hand holding shots. And then when you combine that with a with stabilization in the lens, you can really, really drag the shutter. What camera system are you using by chance? Uh, so I went to Sony mirrorless back in 2013 when they first released the A7R. I was Canon. They released the A7R and just looking at the specs, I was like, this is a beast. You know, I've got to try this. And um, everyone at the time thought I was crazy. Like, why are you using Sony? Um, Because this was literally the first full frame mirrorless and no one really was that confident in the system. And I've stayed with Sony ever since. I will say though, so at the moment I'm on the A7R3 and I've got an A7R4, but what Canon's released with their R5, the Nikon Z7 bodies, all, all awesome, all very similar. And through workshops, I've used all these cameras and I have absolutely no loyalty to any brand. I'll say right now that the brand is, the gear is almost the last thing really. Um, and I'd be happy to shoot with any camera equipment, to be honest, as long as it was had that IBIS, the stabilization, a good dynamic range and decent resolution, then I'm a happy man, can make anything work. So. Yeah, talking about the the whole shooting handheld thing, I, I can totally understand how liberating it is. One of the things that I always recommend to people like on my workshops and stuff is to find composition and to find where you want to shoot from and to explore compositional possibilities handheld because yeah. it's so much easier and you're so nimble. As soon as you put that camera on a tripod, it becomes cumbersome and slow. And you look for compositions to suit the tripod. Speaking personally, though, like one of the one of my biggest struggles as a photographer is that I tend to get a little overconfident Mm -hmm. and I don't and I'm not thorough about like truly agonizing over a composition. And one of the benefits for me personally using a tripod is that it slows me down enough to be like to at least have a moment where I ask myself, okay, could this be better? And I find that my eye is not as critical when I'm shooting handheld simply because I'm not working slow anymore. I'm working fast. Working fast sometimes is the best thing, especially when you're in those situations where you're struggling with mist and you're struggling with rain and you have all these struggles. Sometimes it's nice just bang out a photo really quickly, like take the Mm. lens cap off, focus, take the shot rather than like tweak it with the tripod and the ball head and everything. Now that's a Um, fair point. I would say for me, I probably get in a better flow state though, being handheld just because I'm not thinking about the mechanical aspects of this yeah. metal structure, you know, um, I'm just, I feel like I'm just better connected to the environment. And yes, I agree that you could maybe move a little bit too fast, but I feel like I'm just, it's like, I'm not a photographer when I'm shooting. I'm just 
I'm just an observer. I'm not really thinking too much anymore about anything. Um, and that's what a flow state is, right? Where any creative would relate to that. But, and I find maybe with a tripod for me personally, I'm still more thinking about that adjusting and, but I understand exactly what you're saying. So yeah, it works both ways. And I think it's just a personal thing, right? Like some people love to sit on that same composition for the entire half an hour and just shoot and watch and, and just stay on that compo. Whereas I will dial it in, make sure it's sharp. I'm happy with it then keep exploring and then if the conditions get better and i prefer the first comp i'll just simply walk back and yeah, yeah so you can always right. go it's back good. it's intriguing you know i like the way that everyone approaches and through workshops i've seen that different people the way that we work creatively is always different so i think what you said though that's what i suggest to people let's find the composition without the tripod because that way you're not thinking through the eyes of a tripod then you make the tripod work for you instead of the tripod forcing you yeah. to shoot certain way and that's what i did years ago i just get the tripod out before i've even got to the location almost set the legs up nice and comfortable and then i just walk around and plonk that down everywhere and be too lazy to look for anything beyond that comfort level on the tripod yeah that's the thing about tripods is that they grow roots you know, if, <laughs> That's it, man. when you're on a tripod that you have a tendency to, to not, not move it enough, you'll yeah. move the ball head. Maybe you'll change the height, but very seldom do people continue to explore once the tripod comes out. Mm. And I find a lot of my compositions are, you just wouldn't get the tripod there anyway. Like I'm literally, you know, hugging the edge of a tree or, you know, really low to the ground or just ultra close to something. And when I analyze it, I'm like, there's no way you could actually get it in not without wasting half an hour, you know, just these real precarious positions. Um, I just kind of let my eye just guide me and then suddenly I'm in this real awkward position and, you know, trying to curl up somewhere and make the shot work. And no, I enjoy it, man. It's really fun. And it's just, yeah, it's revolutionized the way that I photograph and, and think about composition. Well, and I imagine when you're shooting handheld like this, one of the most important parts of the shooting workflow is actually reviewing to make sure that you got the, the image sharp. Yeah, okay. so I've got shutter speeds, which in my I know are like ninety percent success rate, and then there's shutter speeds where I know it's like fifty percent success, and it's all dependent on that shake in the hand. Is do you have an elevated heart rate? Is the temperature really low, and you you don't realize? And your focal length obviously plays a role. The wider you are, the slower you can be. You're zooming, you have to be a little bit faster, and that's just where the experience comes in. Definitely, if I get a frame and a composition that I think yes, this is what I was after here. <laughs> Double checking on the back of the screen, just zooming in and even knowing what sharp is on the back of the camera, because unfortunately, you know, those camera screens, the resolution's not that great. And I've had clients who they'll zoom in too far and they're going into the pixel level almost, you know, where it's just indistinguishable. So even just getting an eye for what does sharpness look like without having to zoom in too far, you know, just being able to zone in on an edge somewhere and interpret that's sharp or that's not sharp. And yeah, a bit of practice for sure. So I can imagine going from a tripod straight into my workflow would be pretty daunting, but some you could definitely like ease into it and, and get the feel for it. And, you know, I think it's good just to just to try without the tripod, you know, and then mm -hmm. people will be surprised at what, what you can actually do without using one. And shooting handheld, there there has to be some compromises. First of all, like you did, can't really drag the shutter too far, mm. and which means that sometimes uh, you're going to be forced into a situation where you have to elevate your ISO or shoot a little bit more with an open aperture than you would wish. Yeah, I, I don't like boosting the ISO. I'm pretty 
strict with that um, for obvious reasons. I generally 100 or 200 is where I'll sit. Worst case, 640, which 640 on most of these cameras is almost the same as 320, and it's very it's quite yeah. clean, especially in a forest or something. That's generally where I'd have to boost it in a forest scene. Yep. Otherwise, um, the, you know, one hack you can do if it's for water flow in particular, I'll shoot the scene sharp, let's say one-tenth of a second. I'm going to get that sharp every time. One tenth, bang! I look at the water. If I don't like it, I'll slow the shutter down to anything I want. You could do five seconds if you want to. You just have to manipulate the f-stop so you don't blow out the exposure. But then, of course, in the processing, you can just blend in that slower water into the faster frame. Now, I wouldn't do five seconds, obviously, but it could be something like maybe half a second. I'd say though, most of the time, I'm close enough to the water flow, and I just like that textured look around one eighth, one six, even a quarter. Yeah. I really like that look. Um, you get that texture and softness at the same time, and that's where typically a single exposure can do it anyway. Otherwise, yeah, it's easy enough to just shoot, adjust the shutter speed, shoot again, or put it in bracketing and then just shoot the three fr- frames, and then the slower frame is your water flow frame, and then you can blend it in. Now, the argument there could be that that workflow is more tedious than just going to get the tripod out, and that's a valid point. But for me personally, I'd just rather just be in the field, just do that, and then later in the computer, once you get competent with your processing, it's very quick and easy to just blend in if you wanted to put that water flow in. But I'd say I'm I'm only doing that maybe one in 20 shots, you know? Like, it's pretty rare for me to have to do that. But, yeah, you're right. Sometimes it could be maybe lowering the f-stop a little bit because it's getting dark, but... Yeah, like I said, I just like light. And if I'm shooting when there's light somewhere in the landscape, um, yeah, I'm not really having to compromise too much on the settings. For example, I just did a work a nine-day workshop here. Two of the clients were keen to try the handheld approach and they had mirrorless. So I kind of said to them, look, we're not going to touch our tripod unless we really need to, unless you're uncomfortable. And they were happy to give it a try. And they didn't touch it the entire time. And that's just shooting, you know, all the stuff I mentioned earlier, this vast variety of different scenery and I was like, hey, on the final day, we got the tripod out of the van. I was like, we didn't touch it. And they were like, yeah, they couldn't believe it. So yeah, it's pretty rare for me to have a, uh, some kind of environment where it's like, oh, man, we're going to have to really sacrifice quality or something like that. It yeah. just doesn't really come up. But Astro, Blue Hour, yeah, you definitely will need the tripod for that. And it kind of comes down to the type of photographer the person is too. Like, you know, everybody has their own set of strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, that's Some it. people, some people struggle with the creative aspect, but they're awesome with the technical side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those people could definitely benefit from trying to, like you mentioned, go into more of a flow creative state, you know, mm-hmm. a more creative state of mind where they're thinking entirely about composition and experimentation and exploration. A lot of times, technically minded people struggle with those things. But then there's the other side where they're incredibly creative, but they struggle with the technical side. And those people a lot of times could benefit from slowing down, you know, find that composition, figure out where the camera needs to be, throw it on a tripod, just so they can slow down and actually examine what their settings are think about what their settings need to be. Another thing that, you know, kind of remind or that I thought about as you're talking about these darker forest scenes is, you know, sometimes it would be nice to, uh, to, you know, shoot with a longer shutter speed to let more light in. But in those forest scenes, a lot of times 
there's a little bit of a breeze, which means that all yeah. of that foliage is moving around anyway. Exactly. And you can't really do a long exposure without just ending up with blurry everything. Yeah, exactly. So in those cases, you kind of have a constraint on how, how long that shutter speed can be anyway. That's right. Yeah, exactly, man. Yeah, there's definitely little trade-offs and considerations. Um, I just, I used to kind of carry it with me just in case, you know, the first few months. And then after a while, I just started leaving it behind. And then, you know, the last time I traveled, which was like Patagonia, I just leave it at home. It was so nice to not have to bring a tripod on the plane or carry it around. And you just kind of make do. And like I said, if you do it long enough, like I have five years or whatever now, if not more, um, you just start to figure out those little ways. You learn you learn how to get around certain problems, which may arise sometimes. But, yeah, no, it's cool. I, I think it's just a good time to be a photographer with the technology we've got and access to education for people that are just starting out and everything. I think it's it's great, you know. I just, I'm a big advocate for photography in general. So even just thinking about all this, I just... I get excited. It's just so good for people. There's no right or wrong way, you know, and I think as long as people are enjoying themselves out there and getting those results they're after, then that's all that matters, right? So true. And they're, they're, things are just easier now than they used to be. <laughs> right um, on. Man, I remember, you know, I always tell people, not that I started that long ago, but just over 10 years, but yeah, just having like those early Canon DSLRs where the dynamic range, you'd need awesome. three to four frames, whereas now you can just capture that same scene. You know, in Australia, I'd be inside caves, sea caves, looking straight towards the sun, which is obviously a nightmare from a dynamic range perspective. But yeah, single frame now, you can you can pull all that detail out of the shadows. But back then, it was a tedious, you know, three to four shot or six shot, whatever it was, generally three at least. And then in the computer, like trying to teach yourself, how do I blend this to look realistic and accurate? And yeah, I'm glad those days are behind us, man. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember the dynamic range. My first camera was a Canon T3i. Yeah. Man, the dynamic range on that was awful. You lift the shadows at all and you get those like bending. vertical streaks yeah, the in the shadows. Yeah. And oh, yeah, you couldn't Dark do it. You, you touch it like 10, you raise the shadows by plus 10 and it's like, no, nah, it's over. You've... <laughs> Yeah, Very these good. days you can you can lift the shadows like three and a half stops before you start running into much yeah. noise. And that's really another learning thing I'm teaching people a lot is you got to just trust the histogram. And sometimes we're making yep. this exposure at home. Let's say the forest scenes, for example, you know, if we're shooting towards a little bit of sunlight in particular in the distance, you know, to lead the eye, all we can do is expose for that sunlight and the back of the camera is going to look horrendous. It's going to look so dark. You're not going to think you've got the shot. But then once you get that file in the computer, raise it up, bang, it's all there. So it's teaching people that digital photography is not always getting the final result back of camera. It's if yeah. you're shooting these dynamic scenes, which is what I like to do 80% of the time anyway. Um, and yeah, learning to just trust that histogram and bring that data home and then expose it later, essentially. It's a, exactly. it's a bit of a mind bend for people who are so used to looking on the back and being like, yeah, I've, I've nailed that. But if the light is too dynamic, that dynamic range, you just can't really pull that off. So, But once you can get around that mindset, then it really opens up more creative possibilities. Like you said, you can raise the, the shadows up so much now. Um, so you're doing it later on in the computer, not in the field. Yeah, and there's such a benefit to getting it in a, a single image rather yeah. than a bracket of three. Because oh, even sure. if you know how to exposure blend and you're excellent with luminosity mass, there's no guarantee that those three images are going to line up. Exactly. So if, if you get in a single image, it, it's worse. 
Exactly. And if you get it in a single image where you've exposed for those highlights, you know that even if you dual process or triple process it in Photoshop and blend it together using luminosity mask, everything's going to line up perfect. And that's never a guarantee when you're bracketing. And that's a huge benefit. And the fact that shadows are dark anyway. So it's not like we need those shadow details. Exactly exposed all the way to the right. It's like, as long as we can just see the detail, then that's a realistic look to the image. So that helps again, knowing that, yeah, I've got enough detail when you're in the, in the single frame. Yeah. Nah, good time. Good time to be a photographer, man. Yeah. So I, I take it you're a Photoshop user, correct? Yeah. So when I first started years back, I was using some free software and a friend of mine, a commercial photographer, he's like, look, man, like, you know, you want to get more serious about your photography, you probably need to invest some time in the editing. And I had this mindset of, oh, editing's cheating. You know, I just didn't want to do it. And then basically when he said that, I respected his advice. And I said, well, what do I need to learn? And he, he said something like, this is going back, you know, let's say 2011, but he basically said, you know, Lightroom has some limitations. Photoshop doesn't really have limitations. And for me, self-taught i was like well i don't want to learn either but if i have to learn one i'll learn the one that doesn't have the limitations so i just started using photoshop in adobe bridge to view my files and then processing in photoshop i will say however 99 realistically probably yeah 90 percent of my processing it's in photoshop but it's in acr camera raw which is photoshop's raw developer and that, you know, that is basically Lightroom. So it helps from a teaching perspective because I'll, my workflow in ACR, can be, it's just identical to what you do in Lightroom. The button layout is very similar now with the latest upgrades and everything. So if I had to work in Lightroom, I could, um, but I just prefer jump into Photoshop, ACR comes up. And honestly, Nick, like most of my processing is just using adjustment brushes. I will bring up a raw file and do about three or four global adjustments and then everything else from there, I just use a brush as if I was a painter and I just go in and try and create that three-dimensionality, create the tonal separation, you know, adjusting the values through the scene. And I might have anywhere from five to 10 little brushes that I've done, um, not on a finer, de- like not on a small scale, but on a larger scale, but just, you know, going in and working locally in several different parts of the image. And yeah, more and more that is encompassing the entire edit on my images. Now it's going to depend on the scene, but yeah, most of it's just done like that. Yeah. Because Um, there's always those situations where you need to focus stack or maybe it's a high dynamic range scene. You actually did bracket. Yeah. Those kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. So I say to people, if I go into the main part of Photoshop, I'm getting out of ACR. Yeah. It's for, if I need to do an exposure blend or a focus stack or some of those little things, but Yeah, more and more I'm just being able to work on that raw file and leave it as a smart object from the raw and then just save it from there, which um, yeah, I really enjoy. You know, I don't mind the, the editing side of things, but my most joy and fulfillment is out in the field. And sometimes I'll, I'll have a lot of new images, kind of how I do at the moment, and just the thought of processing them is a little bit daunting. You know, to me, the processing is just like a – it's a hurdle in the way you start off with that experience and vision in the field. And then you use your camera to essentially try and capture that vision that you've got. And then from there to get that into an image that I can share with people, it's in between that whole processing part, which is like, ah, man, this is just in the way of sharing my experience with people. I need to do this. It's a necessary task. So yeah, sometimes I enjoy it. Sometimes I don't, I think it just comes down to how busy you are in life at that given time. 
Sometimes I get and the size of that backlog too. Like the larger that your backlog gets, the more daunting it gets. I know that, you know, when I first, if I get back from a one or two day trip, it's not a big deal to process my keepers. But when I get back from like a week and a half long trip, I, I tend to put it off even longer because it's, I know there's so many images there to go through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's probably where I'm at now where it's been a busy six, six weeks or something, just lots of workshops and shooting in between and everything. And yeah, but lately I'm kind of, like I said, focusing on more of a theme and I think that's helping me with the direction for the forever, you know, I've kind of just shot through the year and then every three or four months I'll release new images on my website, just a portfolio, you know, a collection there. And there's no theme or anything it's just hey this is what i've been up to the last three four months um and then those i just drip feed to social media basically and i I enjoy doing things that way because it means i just take my time there's no pressure i really refine the processing i let them marinate for a long time but uh yeah i did an ice series last year like glacial ice and i really enjoyed just kind of putting my mind to that one thing and even though i'd shoot other stuff around that because i was always you know coming across amazing moments and even though it didn't have ice in it, I'd still shoot it. But I meant those raw files would just sit there for another day. So yeah, at the moment now it's more thinking about forests and what I can do here in the forest specifically, which is a big daunting task because as you said earlier, the forest is the most complex, challenging environment to shoot. And I think it's one of the most beautiful as well. So it's like, how do I do justice to that? So yeah, I'm kind of enjoying just putting the mind on that. So when I think of all those raw files and the backlog, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I've got a few aerials in there and a few mountain scenes and seascapes, but I'm not even concerned about those. Let me just go through the forest stuff I've been doing and, and work on that. So I think, yeah, I don't mind that approach. I might try to do that moving forward, you know, every few months, just have some kind of theme, some kind of subject matter that I've just been focusing on solely. We'll see. That's a really cool idea, not only because it kind of, it keeps you focused, it keeps you um, motivated in a particular direction, but it also keeps your portfolio and your work and your processing style more cohesive as well, mm, because you're processing the same type of image back to back to back. Yeah. And so your processing is going to be a little bit more consistent and yeah, the look sure. is going to be more consistent. Yeah, actually. And I, you just reminded me, I did a seascape one at the start of this year. I wanted to make a like a course of tutorials on seascape photography. So during that, I obviously went out and it was a little bit selfish, but I wanted to create a new body of seascapes. Most of my seascape work was from my early days in Australia. So I went around here in NZ and, you know, across three months or so, three or four months. Now that's not, I've got a wife and two young kids, so I'm not out for three to four months, but for that whole time, every time I did go out on a trip, it was purely seascape dedicated. And you're right. When I look at that body of work, there's a good 30 plus images there, but there's definitely like that overall kind of theme and aesthetic to the images. So yeah, that's, I didn't really think about that. And it's funny because as the years go on, your work does change slightly. So Mm -hmm. I guess in this way, at least there's like a little chapter there of that moment in time, you know, where that's how I was viewing the world. That's how I was kind of composing and processing and everything like that. So I don't know how long I'll do it like this because I guess sometimes it's a bit overwhelming if it's like here's 20 forest scenes and they can almost start to all blend in together. Whereas in the past, if I released 30 photos, maybe three were forest scenes and they kind of stood out a lot because they were the only three. So I guess there's pros and cons. I've always kind of thought of my photography when I release images as like a band riding an album, you know, like 
trying to make an album here, working on it for yeah, a Yeah, it's got to have time. ebbs and flows and different Yeah, and exactly. Very, otherwise, it's just the same song for Exactly. No one wants to hear the same song. No one wants a single to be released every week because the quality is going to decline. So go away, work on the album, and then release that that body of work there that all ties in together. But that that provides another exciting challenge because when I open up my drafts, everything I'm working on, you can view it all and you can see, well, hang on, that one's too similar to that one. That one's got to go now. And then it does help you actually, you know, make the most of that subject matter and try and bring out different things, you know, instead of maybe just doing the same repetitive type of composition every few months and then just releasing a random forest shot. So, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that till we started chatting, but it's got me more excited now to try, <laughs> just to try well, and make sure that, yeah, each image stands on its own and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. isn't blending into the rest too much, even though there's that same overriding theme. Well, and I, I kind of feel, I feel like this with my own photography oftentimes that sometimes I get a little bit formulaic where I have a type of composition that I just roam around from place to place and I'm like doing the same type of composition in a different place. Yeah. You know, I'm making it the same image in multiple places around the world and it's nothing is more, uh, more depressing <laughs> than feeling like you're just repeating yourself. Yeah. I know. I know exactly where you're coming from and it helps. Yeah. I, I, don't, I feel like for that reason, I, I actually don't look at other photographers' photos too much and it's not that, it, you know, I don't enjoy other people's work, but I, I find it liberating when you're not exposed. Think of it like music again. If you're listening to the same type of music and you're a musician yourself, when it comes yeah. time for you to write your own songs, you're going to be influenced by what you've been listening to, right? We are what we eat, essentially. So I feel like it's liberating to not overly consume too much of what I do, um, like landscape photography. So when I'm out in the field, the brain doesn't drift into those formulaic compositions. Now, of course, in visual art, there's stuff that just works, right? We know that. So it's always going to be there. It's always going to work and we're going to apply it, no doubt. But yeah, I find it's refreshing to get out there and just be there in nature and just say, okay, just have those conversations instead of going into the default. Okay, I'm going to shoot it like this. There's the elements. Mm-hmm. There's the pieces of the puzzle. I'm going to put it together. Yeah, kind of forcing yourself to, to have to really think and connect. And yeah, it can definitely be frustrating. And I know exactly what you mean because I've got to places where I can see the obvious shot. I'm like, oh, there's this, there's that. But then trying to force yourself, well, hang on, there's got to be a better way here. There's got to be another way that we can go about this. Um, it's a challenge of when you've been doing it this long, right? You just don't want to keep repeating the same old thing. Exactly. You want to stay true to yourself. Um, something for me personally is I just don't really do much intimate nature stuff. It's quite quite on trend the last 12 months, two yeah. years, and I really enjoy looking at the guys that do that well. I love it. Um, but when I go to do it or I've thought about it, I'm like, yeah, like it's fun and I'll get my clients to do it. But for me, it's just not – that's not the genre, you know, if, again, back to music, that would be like a metal guy now playing pop music. It's like, nah, it just doesn't, doesn't work for me. So I think it's good to stay true to who you are and not do stuff just because you're forcing yourself to do something different. I've got to do it different because that's what you've got to do. Then you kind of lose your individuality in the process. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a, a, a balance there, I think. And yeah, for guys like us and most people have probably been doing it for a long time, how do we stay true to ourselves but still have fun? And, you know, I guess that's the main thing, just having fun. Like it doesn't really matter 
what other people think. <laughs> as long as you're enjoying it and having fun and if it all looks the same, whatever, you know, there's no right or wrong, I guess. Yeah, and I, I find that making the same image over and over, not fun. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> want to grow and do something different. I find that like it really helps to go into a place without those preconceived notions yeah. and to go in with a truly blank slate. That way you can actually react to what's there rather yeah. than force what's there into your preconceived little notion box where you're yeah. going to try to replay the Nick Page greatest hits where like, <laughs> I know this type of image works, so I'm going to try to find this image out here. Yeah. Rather, like it's, it's, much, it's much more rewarding to go in and just react. Yeah. And see what's see what's possible, and then maybe you'll find something new that is still very much you, but it's you reacting to what you saw rather than trying to force what you saw yeah. into your little preconceived notion box. The last few times I've shot seascapes, when I did that release earlier in this year, you know, I, what do you think of when you think of seascape photography? It's slow shutters, swirling water, foreground, midground, background, and when I went out there. I, I didn't consciously say I'm not going to do that, but I started using the mid-range zoom a lot more and using faster shutter speeds, you know, actually just getting that faster shutter on the water, even though, you know, you do that for a wave photo, but this was still with sea stacks and, and I really enjoyed the look it was giving, you know, and trying to get birds in the frame and it felt really liberating to break away from what I had in my mind as like the typical way to shoot a seascape, um, just ignoring that milky water type look and saying, well, hang on, how do I actually get the power here and the, you know, the drama and just not being afraid to yeah, break away from some of those molds that we've created, you know, over the years. So yeah, it is quite fun. And all you got to do is try, you know, just have a bit of a play. And, and again, ultimately for me, it's when I get back and process the shots and I analyze everything. And sometimes I might be like, yeah, that photo I think is a nice photo, but it's not me, you know, it's not really me. And, and then that's the part where it might get cold. But I think the whole process is still enjoyable getting up to that point anyway. And it's all about just having fun and exploring and trying new things. And sometimes when you try those new things, they work. Sometimes they don't. But it's always a good learning opportunity. And yeah. it's always an opportunity for growth. It's always practice. Yeah, right on, man. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that you do that I think is really, really awesome is that you give a portion of your workshop income back to various organizations and stuff. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Um. The, you know, it had me, where I live in New Zealand, or NZ in general, conservation is quite big. It's, it's a small, you know, got a couple of islands here and the, the native birds, for example, they've had, you know, most of history with no predators. And then since man has come to these islands in the last few hundred years, there's introduction of predators like rats and stoats and weasels and things. So you're seeing a lot of um, native birds and things, unfortunately, become extinct and there's also problems with um you know deforestation and even deer you know in the forest so i guess in nz there's a there's a really big spotlight on just appreciating nature and you know not taking it for granted i've been inspired by some other other people and companies i know who are you know give back whether it's through time or money or whatever and i've 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 partnered with other guys to release prints where we give all the proceeds back to conservation. But yeah, with my workshops, the last few years we've started to, um, you know, I've singled out the Kia Conservation Trust. So the Kia is the alpine parrot. 
if anyone watches my Instagram stories, I've got a few images with the Kia in the landscape. It's the world's only alpine parrot. It's just such an incredible animal. Um, you know, they're, they're highly entertaining, very curious, um, highly intelligent as well. So we give back to those guys um, because these these birds, there's only a couple of thousand left and that's it. Once they're gone, they're gone for good. So that's something that I'm big on trying to make sure that we're doing our best to, to help those guys out. And then one of the other um, guys that we work with now is a company that um, just planting native trees, basically. So there's a lot of farmland here. There's a lot of... Um, you know, areas that have just lost trees, whether it's because of farms going in or other reasons. So, yeah, just giving back and helping plant native trees as well. And what's cool about that is um, one of the donations we made recently, uh, my son, my kid's school here, they had a day where they were going out to plant trees and it turned out to be the same company that we give to as well. So they not only was I able to contribute and help with the purchasing of these native trees, but then to have my kids out there and my wife was helping on the day as well, you know, planting natives, native trees, it was pretty awesome to see it just go full circle um, and see it literally in real time. So, yeah, I think, you know, I guess if I was going to summarise it, I think it's important as photographers, right, we go into nature and when we're out in nature, we, we're taking. We're taking photos, we're taking away experiences, it's just take, 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 right? We're taking, you know, all this stuff from nature, but to actually say, okay, well, how do I give back? And we can give back as photographers just by sharing the images and maybe promoting the beauty of the place so people might also come to respect it and admire it. That's great. But, yeah, for me, someone who actually runs a business from nature, you know, here in NZ, I'm running a, a workshop business, it's like, well, hang on. I can't just keep taking, taking, taking. So, yeah, trying to give back is something that's always been at the forefront. Um, and I, giving back to nature at the moment is something that's big to me because that's that's where my passion is, that's where my business is. So, yeah, I think it's something that we could all definitely consider. But, hey, <laughs> it's hard. We live in a timeline where we're bombarded every day by a, one crisis after another and it can get overwhelming. So, for me, it was just kind of narrowing down Something that I can do here in my backyard, that's something that I can really see and connect with and, yeah, start small and then and see what happens there. So, yeah, it's something that we try and do. Everywhere is someone's backyard, you know? And I think that if everybody took a stance similar to yours, it would it would be so beneficial. You know, they, we like you said, as photographers, we're out appreciating and, and um, taking you know, whether it's photos or experiences or, you know, income from workshops where we're benefiting and the very least that we could do as landscape photographers that love, <laughs> love nature, you think that we would give back a little right, bit more than we do sometimes. Yeah. So where can people find your work, man? Where, where's a good place to track uh, you down? All the usual places, um, you know, Instagram, Vero. I'm a big advocate of Vero. I think you probably are as well. I just yeah. think it's where we should be. It always is the place we should have been um, years ago. So Vero, Instagram, Facebook, website, all the, uh, all the usual suspects. But, um, yeah, I try to just always just float around those, those types of places and try to, you know, connect with people that follow my work because – yeah, it does mean a lot, you know. I think I think we can take it for granted on both ends. Sometimes as the photographer, that fact that, yeah, people are looking and commenting and, you know, that's time out of someone's day. And then on the other side of things, as a viewer as well, it's like these people, we, we kind of expect entertainment now from people. And places <laughs> like Instagram are forcing 
people like photographers to become entertainers. And yeah, it does take a, even what we're doing now, a podcast, for example, you know, the time for you to edit this recorded and yeah. So it's all reciprocal, but um, yeah. So that anyway, I don't, I'm going on a tangent, but yeah, you'll find me on those spots, and I try and stay as active as I can without, you know, sacrificing too much of my sanity at the same time. But yeah, that's where I'll I, be found. I would also <laughs> like to take this opportunity to plug his YouTube channel, which is is <laughs> really good. I didn't even know you had a YouTube channel until I stumbled across you, I don't know, a month or so ago, and. He's got some really educational, really entertaining vlogs. He's got a lot of stuff going on in his YouTube channel that you should also check out. It's been a great time. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Nick. Thanks a lot, mate. So thank you guys so much. We'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.